In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May I request for the purpose of this meditation that you close your Bible. For this is the night when a holy solemnity is kept. As I thought about this week and noted that Easter falls on the 24th, a little ding went off in my head. Surely the 24th is the eve of something. Of course. Think back. Where were you on December 24th? Four months ago, almost to the day and almost to the hour, we were here in this very place. But what a difference. On that night, the heavens were ablaze with God's glory. This night is dark, save for moonlit shadows. On that night, hosts of angels sang, Gloria, where are they now? Can it be that on this night, the angels, appalled by what they see, fall silent? On that night, humble shepherds came in haste to worship him, and Persian kings set out with costly gifts. On this night, too, men seek him with clubs and swords. On his first night, the newborn king slept in a borrowed manger. On this last night, he meets us in a borrowed room. This is the dark, the silent night, when a holy solemnity is kept. Now, you and I have been here before. We know what comes next and how it all turns out. But the first disciples didn't. They didn't have a clue. So in order to experience the full weight of this momentous event, I'm asking you to enter the story and live it with them. They are weary, they are confused, and they are stressed out. We'll fit right in. The last several weeks have been particularly hectic. Jesus has always been a controversial figure, but ever since he declared, I am the bread of life, the first of his seven stunning I am statements, the hostility has intensified, the hatred is palpable, his enemies plot against him, and on two occasions have actually picked up stones to kill him with. Four days ago, it was all palms and praises. Since then, it's been confrontations. It's been an emotional roller coaster. We've been with him through it all, but we don't have a clue about what's really happening. We haven't the faintest idea that within the next few hours the gates of heaven will open and death, our ancient enemy, will be forever defeated. All we know is that we're weary and stressed and confused. Jesus, too, is exhausted and heavy-hearted, but he is not confused. John the Evangelist is careful to let us know what is on Jesus' mind and heart. First, he knows his hour has come. Did you pick up the echo? Do you remember back to the wedding at Cana of Galilee when they ran out of wine and Jesus' mother came and turned that problem over to him and he said to her, what is that to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now the hour 
has come. The hour toward which his entire life has moved is now. Secondly, Jesus knows where he's going. He's going to the Father. Interestingly, not his Father, the Father, ours too. Third, having loved them, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. That's a special word for us, I think. One of us will betray him. One will deny him. The rest will scurry or slink away, save only John, who will stand at the cross with Mary. But Jesus loves us to the end. And fourth, Judas is ready to betray Jesus. Those are the four things that Jesus has in mind and heart as the action begins. So what shall he do and say in this, our last time before he goes to his death? What he does are two very dramatic down-to-earth actions that we will never forget. Not abstract principles, not ideas, physical actions that our bodies, our nerves, our muscles, and blood will recall when minds forget and memory fails. Both actions are literally hands-on. The first is downright shocking, so momentous that for its telling, the narrative goes into slow motion. Did you notice that? Very slow motion. So that every move makes a deep impression. Jesus gets up from the dinner table. That's odd. He takes off his outer robe. Hmm, our conversation dies down. He ties a big towel around his waist. Oh my, surely not. He pours water into a basin. He starts around the table and one by one kneels and washes our feet. We are stunned. We are speechless, except, of course, for Peter, who is never speechless. <clears throat> and Jesus shuts him down in a hurry. This is awful. This is embarrassing. This is off the charts, even for Jesus. <laughs> the foot is the lowliest, most disgraceful part of the body. Only a Gentile slave can be compelled to wash our feet. Every day of our lives we have prayed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And we have come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is that Holy One of Israel. Now what are we to think? Is this the behavior of the one who rides upon the thunder clouds and calls the universes into being? So here he is at your feet. Look down. Look at his hands. You've seen them many times before. Breaking bread for 5,000, taking Jairus' daughter by the hand and lifting her up, reaching out to Peter on a stormy sea. But now you feel them on your feet. The strong, sensitive hands of a builder who from his boyhood has framed doorways, hoisted rafters into place, fitted yokes to oxen, crafted tables, and I think whittled toys for small children. He is a worker in wood. His hands know texture, shape, and grain. The beauty of wood 
and what it may become. So too his hands know the ungainly shape, the muscularity, the size, the rough places on your feet. The action is the same for everyone, but the flow of water and the vigor of the towel are nuanced for each foot. This is very personal. This is not a hired servant doing a job. This is your king, your savior, your best friend touching you with love and strength. In years to come, will your feet remind you of this moment? Will you recall how it felt to be touched by Jesus and from his gentle strength gain strength? If and as we participate in ceremonial washing this evening, let it be given and received as the loving touch of Jesus. Because, you see, this foot-washing thing is not a sentimental gesture. It's profound. And you don't have to wonder what it means. Don't go on the web. Don't look at the commentaries. You don't need them. Just listen to Jesus. He finishes the rounds with a basin and towel, and he puts his robe, and he takes his place at the table, and he looks you right in the eye and says, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. Now, get this next part. His logic is impeccable. So, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I have set an example. Now you do what you've seen me do. Well, that's about as plain as it could be. Nothing esoteric or ambiguous about that. No subtlety to hide behind. No gooey message for a Hallmark card. I've set an example for you. Now you do what I've done. What part of that do we not get? Of course, the particular act of foot washing was culture-specific. There's not much demand for that in 21st century America. But the example is the example of the heart of Jesus. The heart which generated the action, the heart of Jesus, hence of his disciples, you and me, is not culture-specific. In fact, beware. Our Lord has demonstrated and commanded us to continue a totally counterculture opposite of 21st century America where it's all me first, I'm entitled, whatever I want, on demand. You and I, as disciples of Christ, are his messengers, his envoys, in whatever century or nation we're to imitate Jesus to have his heart. A humble, loving heart, and to do what he does. Christians sometimes talk as if faith and works are two quite separate things. Jesus never recognized that separation. It was inconceivable to him that a person would claim to have faith and not do works of mercy, justice, and love. He called it bearing fruit. The tree does not stand around and debate whether it should or should not bear fruit. It just does it because it's a tree. 
Now, he expects us, you and me, to do what disciples do. Translate first century foot washing into whatever specific action will bring his touch to each other and to our hurting world. And of course, we want to, don't we? Don't we? Don't we want to be like Jesus? Some of the time? Most of the time? We really do desire and intend that our daily discipleship will make us become more and more transformed into what C.S. Lewis calls little Christs. But how can that be? I know myself. I will fall asleep. I will desert him. I will act as if I never knew him. But I take comfort in the fact that Jesus never commands what he will not enable. And so, after Judas goes out into the night, our Lord does his second powerful, material, physical, unforgettable sign. That is, he institutes the Holy Eucharist. This one is not an example. It's a sacrament. Get the difference? This one is required, not optional. It's constant and universal in Christian worship, in every nation, tribe, and language, in all kinds of buildings or in no building, around the world and through the centuries until the Lord comes again. He is present to us in Holy Communion. For on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. You know the words. Again, watch his hands. He blesses. He breaks. He places a small piece in your hand. How does that feel? And the cup to your lips. Taste it. And know that every time you receive the consecrated elements, you are receiving life in union with him. That's how we live day by day. In him and with him and for him, however imperfectly. This is the sacrament of his empowering unfailing love for us. And so we have seen and felt the hands of Jesus in example and in sacrament. When next we see them, those hands will be nailed to the cross, wet with blood, unable to flick off a buzzing fly, much less reach out to us. At that moment, our minds will boggle And speech will fail, but he will see, and he will know when each one of us cries out, Lord, you've given me an example and a sacrament. Now please, give me a heart like yours. Amen.